When I was a kid, long before home video or, in recent years, on-demand streaming, there were literal holiday movies. At Easter time, our local affiliates would have special showings of sandal epics like Ben-Hur or The Robe. For Thanksgiving, we looked forward to the annual airing of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for some reason. Some other time in the fall would be an annual showing of The Wizard of Oz. And then came Christmas, with TV stations airing a whole slew of stuff in the weeks leading up to the best holiday of the year. We were usually given things like It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. And let's not forget all of those half-hour children's specials like A Charlie Brown Christmas, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the original one, and Rankin Bass's stop-motion delight, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What I'm trying to say is, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It will be an honor, sir. <laughs> These seasonal gems aired when they were supposed to air, and you planned your schedule accordingly. Nowadays, we can watch them anytime we want. Also nowadays, there are many films which were never intended to be Christmas movies per se, but have been shoehorned in with <clears throat> diehard enthusiasm. In between are movies set at Christmas, but that would never have made the Christmas lineup back in the 60s through 80s. These kinds of films have subject matter that's either too dark, too sardonic, or too macabre, and they're certainly not for kids, generally. You've probably not seen them, but you should, and we're going to talk about three of them today. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. They call it the Jersey Bounce. The rhythm that really counts. The temperature always mounts. Whenever they play that crazy rhythm, they play. Hey, starting it's on Journal Square. A Midnight Clear, released in 1992, is basically an anti-war film set in the Ardennes forest of France at an early phase of the Battle of the Bulge in December of 1944. Now, after my little behind-the-scenes thing here, I'm going to let Gordon talk a little bit about that setting in the history and some interesting anecdotes. But meanwhile, back to the film, it features an all-star cast of guys who were on the upswing of their careers, many of whom would go on to even more memorable film roles, including Gary Sinise, Kevin Dillon, and Ethan Hawke. It's not a cheery or light story by any means, but it has heart. The plot revolves around a squad of American Army intelligence and reconnaissance specialists, their numbers reduced to six men due to previous casualties, who are ordered to an abandoned chateau near the German lines to gather intel. 
they run into a squad of German soldiers just rotated off the Eastern Front, who are pretty sure the war is just about over and have basically had enough of it, and the story moves on from there. The film was written and directed by Keith Gordon, who received a nomination for Best Screenplay at the 93 Oscars. The film was well received by critics, but outside of military film buffs and probably reenactors, it isn't terribly well known these days, and that's too bad because it's a solid film. Shot partially in Park City, Utah for location exteriors, which you can tell by the silver birch trees which only grow in the US, that it was not actually filmed in Europe. Oh well, add it to the countless films shot in California that are supposed to be England, North Africa, or somewhere equally far flung, but clearly dotted with California live oaks. And now we're going to hand it over to Gordon. The Battle of the Bulge took place in the late, very late 1944, uh, in December. The Allied High Command had, you know, just sort of running on an assumption that the war was pretty much done because after the June landings in Normandy, France had been rolled up, you know, from German defenses rather quickly. The British had managed to actually get most of the Netherlands and Belgium liberated as well. And uh, our forces were basically in the Ardennes forest, which oddly enough happens to be where the Germans struck in 1940 to overrun France. And nobody expected the Germans to do anything because they were out of gasoline, they were out of munitions. They, they were hard, hard pressed by the Russians as well. Very hard pressed. pressed. In fact, that's something that most Westerners don't understand is just how how many Russians lost their lives in that war. It was very difficult uh, for both Germans and Russians on the Russian front. Anyway, the Germans did a, a surprise attack through the Ardennes against the American forces in this bulge. It's called the Battle of the Bulge because there was this bulge pushing out into German-held, I guess, Luxembourg. And it, it was the perfect spot militarily for an encirclement. It was held by, among others, the 101st Airborne Division, U.S. 101st Airborne Division, which was there pretty much. They'd been really fighting hard for the last several months, last six months, and it was kind of a rest area for them. It was front lines, but considered to be very low probability of any problems. And so when they got hit hard, it was um, they were much reduced in manpower and... Also, uh, in general officers, <laughs> the, uh, for all of the troops there, most of the general officers were off gallivanting in Paris for Christmas, and they got to miss out on all the fun. In fact, the, uh, the commander, temporary commander of the 101st Airborne was their artillery brigade commander, General Anthony McAuliffe. He's the one who famously replied to a German demand for surrender with nuts. Now, this is, is that what he really said, though? Yeah, that, that's what it's come down in history as. It's, we have it on good authority that that is heavily edited. <laughs> but it was a very hard-fought fight. Uh, it was kind of the Germans' last hurrah. And it was, it was difficult. It was fought in the snow. The Germans had the advantage of bad weather, which meant that the Allied Army Air Forces and you know American Army Air Force and the British uh, RAF couldn't fly sorties for 
you know, to support the ground forces. And, uh, you know, the Americans were surrounded and there were cases of the, the Germans having their werewolves, their SS people wearing American uniforms, changing signs and whatnot, and also um, massacring Americans who nominally surrendered. So at any rate, it was an ugly fight. And this, this story is, one of, is a kind of a bright spot in it. There's not a lot of bright spots in that whole story of the Battle of the Bulge. It was very hard fought. There is a rather amusing little incident, though, that I heard from two different sides. There are two Native American guys in the 101st Airborne. One was a Crow and one was a Cheyenne. And they were hereditary enemies, but they're the only two enemy, Indians there. So they were hanging out together. And here they are being surra you know, surrounded by Germans. They noticed that the German patrols were mostly being done on horseback. Now, it's one thing that nobody really thinks about is that the Germans still relied very, very heavily on horsepower, literal horsepower for patrols and for drawing wagons and whatnot because limited gasoline. Well, and also great for that kind of terrain too. Hilly, hilly, woodsy, no great roads. It was absolutely perfect for patrols in that terrain. So these two young men went to their company commander and said, hey, can we go steal their horses? Well, why, why would they think that that was a thing? Well, their grandfathers had both told them that, that if you steal horses for the army from your enemy, then the army will pay you. Their grandfathers. Their grandfathers told them this. So this was a 19th century. This was, yes, this was during thing. the Indian Wars uh, of the late 19th century. And that was an army standard you know, procedures if some Indians who are nominally on our side go steal horses from Indians who are not, then we'll give you money or you get to keep the horses. So these guys get a go ahead from an army captain to go steal horses. So they do. They go find where the, the Germans have, <laughs> have their horse corrals and they steal a whole bunch of horses, like 25 or 30 horses, something like that. And they come back and they present them to their captain and say, okay, now we get paid, right? No, you don't get paid. But Grandpa said we'd get paid. Yeah, mine did too. No, you're in the army. You don't get paid for stealing horses. Well, can we keep them? Well, no. Where are you going to put them? You don't, you're, in the, you're in the infantry. You're, you're not cavalry. You don't get to keep these horses. They were very distraught. But that was also the last big what they would refer to in the time as crow raid <laughs> of stealing horses in, in a military, in a military setting. setting of stealing horses for the army. And I heard this both from a fellow who got it from the Crow tribe and from a friend of ours who is part of the Cheyenne tribe. And these guys were both together at my house one time several years ago. And one brought it up and said, oh yeah, I know those guys. And they get, they both had the names of Oh, that's their hilarious. Tribal fellow, which sadly I've forgotten, but it's, these are very well-known stories. There's a very well-known story without in both tribes, because these guys were basically heroes for doing what they had done for hundreds of years, except in Europe in World War II.
Our next film is more recent, 2005, but is set in the First World War instead of the Second. Dealing with the famous Christmas truce of December 1914, it tells a story through the eyes of French, British, and German soldiers, and a couple of German civilians. Nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 2006 Academy Awards, it is one of the last appearances of Ian Richardson. It's loosely based on actual events for which there are numerous accounts. Crown Prince Wilhelm did send the lead singer of the Berlin Imperial Opera, Walter Kirchhoff, on a solo visit to the front lines, where he received standing ovations from the beleaguered foot soldiers. Writer-director Christian Carian grew up on his family's farm in northern France, where he was constantly reminded of World War I, as the family often unearthed unexploded ordnance from the 19-teens. He heard stories of French soldiers sneaking out of the trenches to visit their wives at night in nearby German-occupied towns. He'd never actually heard about the Christmas truce as a kid, since the French authorities suppressed the stories as, quote, acts of disobedience, unquote. Later, he met a historian who showed him photos and other documents from French, German, and British archives, and he was fascinated. The film attempts to portray all of the soldiers with equal sympathy, and Karian tried to follow the actual events as much as he could. One thing that he was forced to change was the fate of the cat. In reality, in a fit of moronic pique, the cat was arrested by the French and accused of being a spy and shot by firing squad. While filming the movie, extras refused flat out to participate in this scene, so Carrion rewrote it to have the cat imprisoned instead. Well, good for him. That's a rare case of fiction improving on fact. The film follows six characters, a lieutenant in the Royal Scots Fusiliers, a French infantry lieutenant, a Jewish-German infantry lieutenant, a Scottish priest, and the aforementioned opera tenor, here with a different name, and his Danish mezzo-soprano fiancé. I'm not going to rehash the plot because you should just watch the film. Needless to say, this film was well-received. It's beautifully shot and acted, and while not a chirpy, happy Christmas story, it's a well-crafted look at the realities of war and, I'll say it, the brotherhood of man. Now, some critics have accused it of being overly sentimental, but other critics respond by pointing out that this was another time. This is different warfare and different people. It's not a bunch of professional soldiers doing surgical strikes in the Middle East. This is young men, boys really, forced into a conflict at the behest of warring heads of state. For a historical take on the setting of this film, let's hand the mic over to Gordon. World War I was one of those horrible tragedies that everyone, everyone looks back on and says, this could have been avoided. It was a combination of Russian greed, they wanted Constantinople, of German, not arrogance, but more pride and wanting their place on the, the world stage as a great power. 
French demand and desire for revenge against the Germans for really embarrassing loss the French suffered in the uh, um, Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and as standard English perfidity, uh, as the French call it, Albion perfide. And there were so many spots where this times when this war could have been stopped, even as late as 1916, when the Germans sent out some feelers to stop the war. Did they want to negotiate a... Yeah, a, they were willing a, to negotiate a... a, a truce or Yeah, something? based on, uh, they call that status quo antebellum. And, but the English and the French, oh, that means they're weakening. It's time for us to hit harder. Anyway, it was, it was horrid. So many, so many lost opportunities and so many fine people dead because of it. At least, you know, in some cases, the, the people who were responsible did suffer a little bit for their actions, but not enough. The war had started in August of 1914. And by December, there'd already been millions of casualties and you got to remember it's going to go on for another four years isn't the battle of the somme in there in the beginning somewhere uh which one oh, <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah not the one you're thinking of that was oh, 1916 because that was a real meat grinder yeah the british had done their miracle at mons by stopping the germans pretty much in their tracks at huge cost to the british old the old contemptibles the the british regular army but Nevertheless, it didn't stop the war by any means. Everybody thought they'd be home by Christmas. Well, they weren't. And so all these guys are thinking, why are we here? This is stupid. But the propaganda had started on both sides. And it was in many ways perpetuated through propaganda, which is why we talked about last time about the propaganda film on Pearl about Pearl Harbor they, they didn't want to show because you can get painted into a corner with your own propaganda which is what happened in World War one at any rate the the setting is the Christmas truce of 1914 which was a real thing and as the movie shows it started off with Germans putting a Christmas tree up in the trench you know it shows and the, the British and the French can see that these Christmas trees and against uh, across from the Scottish troops the, in the British line, or as Scots like to say, well, when we're doing something right that the English like, then we're British. If we do something they don't like, then we're Scottish. So <laughs> the Scots are sitting there listening to the Germans sing Silent Night, and they join in. And so they're singing in the, each in their own language. And it's, it's beautiful. There's some, so many poignant, poignant scenes. Uh, and eventually they're, you know, they start talking and the Germans holler over, hey, English! And the Scots say, there's no English here! <laughs> and, and of course, the Germans are not Prussians and they don't really like the Prussians and the Scots don't like the English. And, you know, yet there they are shooting at each other. And there's the French. But there's, there's so many beautiful scenes. There's one scene where the the German officer is talking to the French officer and the Frenchman asks him something about German, you know, Protestant stuff. And he says, I have no idea. I'm Jewish, which is very true. The Germans had a very large Jewish population and there are many, 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 many Jews served in the German army in World War I quite proudly. In fact, they're one of their top aces 
the Jewish genius, Werner Foss. What can you say? So, again, these the German and the French officer are talking, and they discover they the, the, the Frenchman is from this little town that the German had visited on his honeymoon. So he knows it quite well. And he says, well, your family's still there? Yes, my wife is there, and her name is such and such. Oh, well, we were just there. You have a son. So the Frenchman learns he has a son. It's just, it's, it's, it's very poignant. And they have a soccer match, you know. They have to play football, uh, and they're wrestling and stuff. And one of the best scenes, though, of many, many good scenes, was where the Scottish priest performs mass for all of them, because they're actually all Catholic. And he is, he's basically, you know, punished heavily for doing this later by his command, his chaplaincy command. But he said, how can I not give communion to fellow Christians? And so they have a Christmas mass all together. So it's an extremely sad, poignant, and beautiful, just beautiful film. Uh, World War I has always fascinated me because both of my grandfathers were involved. One was in the U.S. Army, the other in the U.S. Navy, and they both went overseas. So it's always held a, a fascination for me. And this, this is just, you know, a beautiful, beautiful film. And I, I highly, highly recommend it. It's the most magical time of the year. When traditions are honored. And the youngest among us still believe in the spirit of the season. We found something else than just plain rocks and dirt. This mountain is like a giant icebox. For storing what? Drill deeper. Bear the dynamite. You have grave to rob. In 2003, a Finnish commercials company released a short called Rare Exports, Inc. online. You can find it on YouTube, and I'll post links in the show notes. Written and directed by Yalmari Hellander, it follows a day in the life of three, quote, wild Santa hunters roving the wilds of Lapland in search of Santas to tag, tame, and train into department store Santa Clauses. It was such a weird little hit that Hellander followed up two years later with Rare Exports, the official safety instructions. Now before I drone on, special thanks to our friend Graham Ainsley for alerting me to the shorts, which I had somehow missed over the years. Now two more years later, Hellander pitched a feature-length take on the same subject to producer Petri Jokiranta. The shorts had gained cult status by this time, and the two filmmakers dove into development. Starting production in 2009, and using the same core cast as the shorts, Rare Exports A Christmas Tale was released at Christmas time 2010 in Finland, Norway, Sweden, Germany, the UK, the US, and Australia. It won several awards, including a Saturn Award for Best International Film, and to this day it holds its own on Rotten Tomatoes at around 90% positive. 
The odd, dark comedy horror film has grossed over $4 million since its release, which is not bad for a movie that costs less than 2 million euros to produce. The plot isn't complicated and has an ordinary folks in extraordinary circumstances vibe that I always enjoy. Semi-spoiler. Are you a fan of Krampus? This one's for you. In a remote village in northern Finland, a group of hunters run afoul of some American mining company digging for something at the top of a mountain just over the Russian border. The mining, whatever it is, activity seems to have spun up the local large predator population with disastrous results for the yearly reindeer roundup. When the irate hunters decide they've had enough and they go to confront the miners, they discover that nobody's there anymore and what was under the mountain was put there for a reason and digging it up was a bad idea. The term Santa is bandied about, but what they have looks far more sinister. Then more Santa's helpers start showing up in increasing numbers to support and free their master and wreak hell on earth. The hunters aren't going to let this happen without a fight. I love a lot of things about this movie. I love the pilot who always wears his aviator sunglasses. I like the lived-in look of the sets and the wardrobe and even the cast's hair. My favorite thing about this story is that the protagonist is a little boy, not some beefcake dude. Child protagonists can be smarmy or twee or generally annoying, but this kid is not. He's a tough little guy with a shotgun and a hockey helmet. And when the going gets tough, he steps up. As a bonus, the guy who plays his dad in the film is the kid's actual dad, which gives him some nice chemistry. I like this film a lot more than Gremlins, to which it has been compared, and uh, it's currently streaming on Hulu and Apple TV and several other places with ads, or you can be cheap like me and just get it from your local library. Gordon, how do you like this movie? I loved it. It's, uh, you know, I... I guess one of one of the things I find fascinating about it is here is a European film, and just about everybody is running around armed. Uh, well, they live in the far, far north, and, and they talk about there's wolves running around, oh, yeah. and you shouldn't be outside by yourself, little boy. Exactly. And uh, they, Dad gives the little boy his own shotgun. And now, of course, there are a couple of guys have bolt-action rifles. The other guys have d- double-barrel shotguns. And, you know, I mean, that's that's fine. That's very European. But uh, I thought it was interesting, and here they are zooming around on their uh, snowmobiles. Yeah, Mm -hmm. snow snow machines, and everybody's on one of those, has a rifle with them. Very, uh, very realistic. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me after watching that that if I grew my beard out, I could pass for one of the Santas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you just need a scraggly beard. A scraggly beard, but I'm a skinny old man, so... (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I fit right in. Yeah. There's there's no fat jolly Santas in this. No, not really. And there's a content warning. There's a lot of naked old gray-haired men <laughs> running around in this movie who as the elves, Santa's helpers. Santa's helpers. There's no gratuitous yes. nudity, but there's plenty of it. And it's just, you know, I mean, it's kind of scary and sad. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. there it is. Nothing, nothing to be alarmed about. No, no. It's, it's not exactly what I would call a kid-friendly movie because it's kind of dark. But I th- definitely, I think teenagers would get a kick out of it. It's like saying Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Is this really a Christmas movie? Well, it takes place at Christmas and... 
Welcome to the party, pal. (laughs) Yeah, it involves Yule themes and I don't know. It's just a fun, it's just a fun movie. Rare Exports. Like I say, I'll put links to the shorts in the show notes. Or if you do get your hands on a hard copy from your local library, the shorts are on the DVD with that too. But yeah, fun movie. Ice cream is an old established business. Everybody knows where he stands in this city. Something's got to be done. It seems so stupid. It's almost like a joke. People getting so angry about ice cream. It's a joke. We have a Facebook page, and it's called, naturally, Celluloid Days. Please join us there to comment and discuss the films we cover. We're also on Twitter, at Celluloid underscore Days. We're always looking for film suggestions, and the more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com, all one word. Feel free to email us for any reason, even if it's just to say hi to Jeff. He really likes that. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. It will help others find the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week for a brief look at the 1984 Bill Forsyth dark comedy, Comfort and Joy. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. <laughs>